Okay, church, how many blessings did you count? Many. Sunday morning is usually kind of rushed, and if you have little kids, you'd know that uh, very intimately. But coming in here to this sanctuary, seeing your faces, hearing the music, that's a blessing to me. It's like, okay, I have a respite, a safe harbor from the week of all this craziness. And I hope you feel that way, too, and I'm glad that you're here. A few announcements. I have a biography of R.C. Sproul that uh, you're welcome to borrow. It's got my name on it, which means I want it back. But an incredible deep dive, insight, well-written, easy read into an incredible man's life. And I learned so much just outside of theology and apologetics from, from reading this. So I commend this to you. It'll be on the back. We have Thanksgiving meal afterwards, and you're all invited. Even if you did not come prepared, you can prepare your appetite during the service. We're Baptist. There's a lot of food. Um, so let's go feast. And there are crayons on the tablecloths. So you can scribble all your Thanksgiving blessings. And feel free to write that you're thankful for Pastor Andy. Um, and just spell my name right, please. Some important announcements. Wednesday, we're having Thanksgiving. Um, I'm not sure what to call it, but Pastor Wayne is just going to do a devotion on Psalm 100, and it's going to start at 7 o'clock sharp and end at 7.30 or so sharp. Yeah, just a prayer of blessing, and we'll read Psalm 100 and do a devotional on it as well. Okay. And I'll still send out the prayer list. Uh, there is no youth choir practice today uh, because we have some little ones out sick that's all the announcements you can look in the bulletin insert for other information but now here's a reading from Luke chapter 7 in your Bible that's right after Luke chapter 6 Luke 7 after he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people he entered Capernaum now a centurion had a servant who was sick, and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word, and let my servant be healed. For I, too, am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, Go, and he goes, and to another, Come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. And he drew to, and he drew, Excuse me. As he drew near to the 
gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearer stood still. And he said to the man, Young man, I say to you, rise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and... God has visited his people, and this report about him spread throughout the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. And may the Lord bless the reading of his word, and may we have that same amount of faith and believe that God really is God. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Andy, for that reading. We've been reading various selections from the life of Christ to begin our worship in thinking about Jesus Christ. And in particular here, as Andy pointed out, notice it is about faith. Jesus says in a a marveling way that this is indeed marvelous to to believe, verse 9. And of course, to recognize the very work that Christ did in, in calling a, a man physically to life, which really points to a far greater truth, and that is bringing someone to spiritual life, um, one who can forgive sin, one who can regenerate the heart. And this is a great season. Uh, I really enjoy this holiday season of Thanksgiving because it reminds us, indeed, what to be thankful for and to enjoy family and friends and fellowship and things that we're able to do at this time. But all of this is a good gift from God's hand, and so we are thankful to him. And so take a moment now privately as we uh, prepare this Lord's Day to worship Christ. Uh, Perhaps you have uh, a word or two on your own mind to which you would like to respond in great thankfulness to God for. I'm going to give you a moment to do that privately now where you're at, and then I'll pray for us corporately. So you pray first silently where you're at, respond in thanksgiving to him, and then I'll pray for us corporately. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I do pray indeed that we are thankful people who have come before your presence, come before your presence in the fact that we can come through the giving of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that is well beyond whatever we could ask or whatever we could think and certainly what we deserve. You don't treat us in the way we actually deserve You grant us great mercy provided through the grace that is in Jesus Christ our Lord. 
And you have awakened us to see Christ, to see and savor his glory. I pray, Father, that that would be increased even in this season. I pray for those folks that we will (coughs) perhaps meet and share a fellowship table with, whether it's this day or the days shortly ahead. I pray, Father, that they would be filled with thanksgiving for you, for your goodness to us. May each morning that we awake, may we recognize your faithfulness, which is and your mercy, which is new every morning. May our hearts respond in great thanksgiving and joy for the breath that you have given to us. And I pray that it would redound to praises to your holy name. I pray for this day, Father, that you will give us a heart uh, that responds in great faith to you. I pray, Father, that should there be any outside of faith and and really are not alive in Christ, I pray today would be the day in which they would awake to this newness of life that you would grant to them. May all of us be reminded of this great truth and the fact that you came, that you lived among us, that you demonstrated incredible miraculous work that points to this unique dynamic of rescuing us from the consequences of our evil heart and that you are shaping us day by day more into the image of your son. I repent and we repent for our failure to live up to such a state that we are called to do. I'm thankful that you are faithful and just and will forgive us all our sin and cleanse us from all our unrighteousness. And to that we are truly thankful and in great joy. So grant to your people a deep-seated joy, recognition of the peace that we have in your presence, knowing that we can come now boldly to this throne of grace and obtain mercy and help in our various times of needs in the way that we need it this day. We thank you for your goodness, your grace, and may your glory be manifested today and every day ahead. May Christ be exalted. I pray in his name. Amen. In Psalm 116, the psalmist asks the question, how can I repay the Lord for all the good he has done for me? Well, the answer is to be thankful. Let's all stand and turn to 636 in our hymnals. 636, come ye thankful people, come.
turn back a little bit to 625. 625, I will sing the mercies of the Lord. Rejoice, ye pure in heart. 578.
reading this morning is from Psalm 144. This psalm uh, stood out to me when I read through it as being a notable prayer of David that was notable to me because it reflected the Lord's Prayer in uh, the Gospels. It seemed to follow that same structure and echo the direction that we are to lead ourselves oftentimes when we don't know how to pray or when we're harried about on every side uh, and the Lord will be there for us but in Psalm 144 he starts out in the same way as he does as uh, Christ leads us in the Lord's Prayer with blessing and praise with humility and awe with petition and supplication and praise and then more supplication and praise. Wrapping up. So let us read Psalm 144 of David. Blessed be the Lord my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. He is my steadfast love and my fortress, my stronghold and my deliverer, my shield and he in whom I take refuge, who subdues people under me, O Lord, what is man that you regard him, or the son of man that you think of him? Man is like a breath, his days are like a passing shadow. Bow your heavens, O Lord, and come down. Touch the mountains so that they smoke. Flash forth the lightning and scatter them. Send out your arrows and rout them. Stretch out your hand from on high. Rescue me and deliver me from the many waters, from the hands of foreigners whose mouths speak lies and whose right hand is the right hand of falsehood. I will sing a new song to you, O God. Upon a ten-string harp I will play to you, who gives victory to kings, who rescues David, his servant, from the cruel sword. Rescue me and deliver me from the hand of foreigners, whose mouths speak lies, whose right hand is the right hand of falsehood. May our sons in their youth be like plants full-grown, our daughters like corner pillars, cut for the structure of a palace. May our granaries be full, providing all kinds of produce. May our sheep bring forth thousands and ten thousands in our field. May our cattle be heavy with young, suffering no mishap or failure in bearing. May there be no cry of distress in our streets. Blessed are the people whose, to whom such blessings fall. Blessed are the people whose God is the Lord. Amen. Let's go to the Lord. <clears throat> Father, we do praise you for who you are. We praise you for your glory, for your righteousness, Lord God. You are holy righteous. You are beautiful, and you share that beauty with us. We praise you for that. We praise you for the mercy that sent your Son to redeem us, Lord. We redeem us even in our own sin while we were in the depths of enmity towards you, Father. We praise you for your grace to us, now that you have redeemed us. We do not deserve the grace that you shower upon us. You give it to us time and time and time again. You give us many, many gifts. You have given us the gift of fellowship, Lord, today. And we would like to give thanks today and throughout this week and every moment of our lives to you for that, Father God. We thank you for these gifts, for the beauty the righteousness 
and for your holiness, Lord God. We ask that you would bless us in the way that David asked, that you would give this church the gift of strong, godly, honorable children, that you would raise them up in this congregation, that you would bless them with the knowledge of yourself, that you would strengthen our hands and our words as we um, raise those children that were ours and that as we are examples to those children that are not ours, Lord, that we would provide a good uh, example, a good leadership for them to see that they would see us turning towards the, the word whenever there is trouble, we turning towards the word whenever we are in joy and uh, delighting in your gifts, Lord. We ask that you would heal the sick in this congregation, Lord. We have so many that are stuck home with illnesses, but we know that you are working in them right now through natural and supernatural means, Lord God. We ask that you would bless us with health and with provision, Lord. We thank you that you have given us the resources that you have, uh, clean and safe homes that we can rest in, Lord. And we ask that you would bring those who are sick back to us so that they can fellowship again soon. We ask that you would reveal yourself to us, Lord God. Demonstrate yourself through your miraculous wonders and the power uh, that you display in nature, that you would keep us in awe of who you are, that we would never lose sight of your incredible, uh, awesome power and authority over everything, your sovereignty over every molecule, Lord God. We ask that you would help us to prosper in those things that you have set our hands to, that you would uh, guide us while we were in our workplaces or uh, in our hobby uh, times or uh, in our crafts, that everything we do would be giving glory to you, that we would be demonstrating your majesty in uh, the gifts that you have given us of creativity, that you would demonstrate your grace through us in our interactions with our uh, family and with our co-workers, Lord God. And we ask that you would protect us in those times, that you would protect us both bodily and even more so that you would protect our hearts and protect our spirits, Lord, that we would not stray, that we would constantly return to you and keep our rest in you, find our hope in you, Lord God. We ask that you would allow us to be a witness to those we encounter, uh, whether it be at work or uh, just going about our daily lives, that we would uh, demonstrate to them your glory whether they be a believer encouraging them or not a believer, that we would call them towards you, that we would not be a hindrance or a stumbling block. And all these things, Lord God, we praise you. We give you glory. You are righteous. You are holy. You are the most high, the only righteous one. Holy is your name. Holy are you, Father God. We thank you for all of these things. We thank you uh, for this time of thanksgiving and fellowship. And you're Son's mighty name. Amen.
I'll stand and turn to 575 in our hymnals. My heart is filled with thankfulness, 575. instruments and I do hope your heart is indeed filled with thankfulness we have much to be thankful for and in a single name it would be Jesus Christ our Lord let's consider Christ this morning from his word in Hebrews chapter 4 Hebrews chapter 4 In this section, the focus is going to be on God's rest. And specifically, if I don't get to complete all of the ideas here, note that it is indeed Jesus is your Sabbath rest. I think you'll find that connection here as we read through and as you understand it in the context of Hebrews. Remember, this is a message, an apostolic message to the people of God, specifically the Hebrews. They had come to Christ, they had left Judaism, they left 
the world in which they existed, to which they were connected culturally as well. Everything was different in Christianity. And the preacher of Hebrews gives them a great warning time and time again not to turn back and not to turn away because there is no other help, there is no other hope. That's the flow of the letter. It it is essentially a sermon. It points to the supremacy of Jesus Christ. You'll see that from the very beginning to the very end, and that is the, the glue that holds it all together. Because there are some sections that are more difficult than others, and this is a bit difficult when we get to chapter 4, somewhat difficult to grasp what is he talking about with this rest that's repeated a number of times. It's elaborated and then it's illustrated here. I think our key verse, at least in the immediate section we're dealing with, just to note, is found in verse 9. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. A number of theological considerations are made. So it might take a few glances here at the text today and the days ahead to to understand what indeed this author is intending so we can certainly apply it to ourselves. Our focus is going to be on that rest, God's rest, for the very people of God for whom it's intended. Now, beloved, we live in a restless world. That might be an understatement of sorts. There is much uncertainty, and uncertainty is going to breed anxiety. Dangers and difficulties abound. God, however, promises rest for his people. You remember in the reading we read earlier from Nathan, it it ended in Psalm 144. This is throughout scripture, but just as I was reading it as well, I noticed this is the same idea. Here is kind of a utopian concept, if you will. There, There will be abundance. The granaries full, Psalm 144. The plants are going to grow. There's going to be families and women and men and children. The sheep brings forth thousands and tens of thousands. The the cattle in a great abundance with, with no mishap in bearing. We live in a world with a lot of mishap in many ways. There's going to be no cry of distress in the street. And blessed are the people to whom such blessings fall. Can I tell you who those people are? Blessed are the people whose God is the Lord. I don't care what kind of difficulty you might be going through, what kind of distress you might have, what kind of shortage you may have. Find your refuge in him. There is great rest and great blessing for the people of God. And today is a day to enter in. There remains. It's in the current sense. 
We can imagine some sort of utopian world, and many people do, and many people try to achieve that. They simply make various rules and obligations to, to acquire that, and they find out that, no, we live in a world of rule breakers, even the people who make the rules. They actually design them so that they can break them. And the hypocrisy abounds. But there is an ideal state. And in general, we can call it rest, God's rest. Remember from the prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah 11, I'll read for you a couple passages from him, particularly this season, because you'll hear these again. But in this vision of rest for God's people, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf, and the lion, and the fattened calf together. And a little child shall lead them. There's no danger anymore. No difficulty anymore. That's the imagery given. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their, Their young shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like an ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of a cobra. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. And they shall not hurt or destroy in my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. I just remind Henry often prays that when we pray together. It's a great text, isn't it, Henry? To, to think about the whole earth, this, have faith, believe, understand this, the whole earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That, that is looking forward to this time of rest. It is promised this peace that will come about, will come about through one Jesus Christ, our Lord, who is indeed the Prince of Peace. And this time of year we remember from Isaiah 9, unto us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. And his name is called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. It doesn't end. This is the rest that is promised. It is through the person of Jesus Christ and it will never end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice, with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord will do this. This ideal state of described as rest is another way to think of it. That's what he's getting to here, the preacher of Hebrews. This is going to be fulfilled. It'll be fulfilled ultimately through Jesus Christ and him alone. There will be a millennial reign of Christ. who will reign on, his, on, his, on David's throne and in his kingdom forever. His ultimate triumph over the devil and his evil works will procure a, an eternal rest 
for the people of God. And as the book of Revelation goes on to explain, there'll be a new heaven and a new earth, and as it were, a holy city, Jerusalem, descending down. There won't be this disconnect between God and his people anymore. This is the eternal rest that is pointed towards. This idea of rest has been pictured and pointed to in the Old Testament, the Sabbath. It points to the person of Jesus Christ who will actually fulfill it. And it won't just be for a day. It'll be forever. And the good news is that that rest is a reality and it is said to be remaining even now, today, for God's people. And the admonition of the preacher of Hebrews is, don't harden your hearts. Don't think lightly of it. Don't dismiss it from your mind. Have that in front first thoughts. Now, as we turn to chapter 4 in the text here in Hebrews, you can notice it opens with this word, therefore. He's continuing the theme that he has been preaching on, which is certainly the excellency and supremacy of Jesus. He's extolling those ideas that are highly valued. He's already told us that Jesus is more excellent, supreme, better than any of the prophets that came before, better certainly than angelic hosts who came and gave the law. He is better than even Moses, the greatest one in their minds in Judaism. Now in this chapter, he's going to move forward and say that he is also better than Joshua, the deliverer, because Joshua pointed to one who actually will deliver. So he's noting that and and ends up mentioning Joshua here because Jesus is also superior to him as well because he grants a greater promised rest. Chapter 3, if you remember, details the rebellion of the people who died in the wilderness because of their unbelief, their lack of faith. Unbelief, lack of faith, is deadly. It is demonstrated physically for us in what happened. Their bodies died in the wilderness. To point out this spiritual truth of unbelief is the most deadly thing. Look at verse 19 of chapter 3 before we begin chapter 4, and I'll read in just a second, but notice how it ends. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. They couldn't go into that rest that was promised because of unbelief. You're not going to go into God's eternal rest with unbelief. That baggage doesn't get through the turnstile. So therefore, based on all of that, we'll begin in chapter 4 and look through the first 
11 verses. So therefore, now all of this, understanding this, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard didn't benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he said, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has spoken somewhere of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again, he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David, so long afterwards, in the words already quoted, today, if you will hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them a rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works, as God did his. Let us, therefore, strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Let us pray. Oh, Father, I do pray that we would be among those who listen. I pray that you would give each of us ears to hear the very words of Christ, a new heart to respond in repentance and faith. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, you notice here in this section, it continues on with this, with this concept of rest for the people of God, as I've mentioned. It can be somewhat confusing if you're not careful to follow the train of thought that, that is given. And one of, the way, one of the reasons I like to preach through a book of the Bible, not that that's the only way to do it all the time, but I like to do that so that you can follow the proverbial train of thought, if you will. To go through kind of more in a progressive way from the beginning to the end, chapter by chapter, section by section, verse by verse. This letter, as I mentioned, is, is rooted in the context in which it's given in this, immediate, in this immediate context, if you remember, he's continuing on with this exposition of Psalm 95, which is recorded in chapter 3. He now turns his attention to the very last part of Psalm 95, an exposition, explanation, if you will, of Psalm 95, before, in chapter 3, he was emphasizing the idea of, of not 
behaving the way they did in response, but instead respond in faith. And now he points to the very close of Psalm 95 in his exposition, beginning in chapter 4, with an emphasis on the fact of the ultimate result, which is rest or the lack of it. I'll read 95, 10, and 11 for you. For 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart and have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. God had promised Israel a rest. But those who receive that rest are going to do so by faith. Those who rebel against God will not enter his rest, but instead have the wrath of God, and I would say continue to abide on them. Two groups are in view, and in reality, we like to divide today humanity up in all kinds of sections and subsections and by all different characteristics, you can throw that out the window. There are really only two types of people, if you will. Those who are expressing faith are believers, and those who are not unbelievers. That's the two categories of humanity. It's that simple. Everything else is temporal and doesn't really matter. This is what is crucial, and this is what matters. If you don't believe, John chapter 3, if you don't believe, you're condemned. You're going to die in the wilderness. You're condemned already, John 3.18. That's the current status. Because you haven't believed in the name of the only Son of God. That's the two categories. Believers and unbelievers. Regenerate and unregenerate. Those who have faith and those that do not. There is no in-between. It is a matter of life and death. It's that clear. This physical promise of rest utilized here in quoting this Old Testament, is a picture of a spiritual promise of rest. God has planned this from the very beginning. He has promised this in verse 1. The plan you'll see in verse 3 of chapter 4. And this good news then is proclaimed in, chapter, in verse 6. And it is for those who appropriate it by faith and faith alone. Verse 10. Let me walk through this the best I can with the time that we have. I want you to first notice this promise that has been given. This promise of rest. And it is described for it is for those who are described as those who fear and those who listen. This promise of rest, verse 1, says it, it, it still stands. It's still available. This is the 
call for a, a close and crucial attention. He's already said that in chapter 2, that we must pay closer attention to the things that we have heard and, and uses a different analogy, a nautical one, as though you're going to drift away. Here, it is critical because if you, if you don't listen, this, this rest is, is still available, but you're not going to enter in. So pay cl- close attention. The opportunity to enter into God's rest is now, not tomorrow. He quotes Psalm 95 to demonstrate that and says, Today, in the present, hear his voice. And so, what, what is the demonstration of this hearing, if you will? Notice verse 1 The charge is then to fear. Let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Fear mentioned here is in the context of having a sober mind concerning your relationship with God. In the Old Testament, by example, and the one that he points out of all of these people, delivered from Egypt, ready to go into the land of rest, who died in the wilderness, um, they thought they were going. They thought they were going to, to be in it. They thought that they were going to make it because somehow they were part of the group. They engaged in all the rituals. They, were, they had relationships with one another. They were on the the bus, if you will, going to the destination. But the call is then to fear in case you fail to receive it because many failed. That's the point. You see it? Many have failed to reach it. The illustration from the wilderness demonstrates that point. This is one of the reasons, by the way, that we're careful in, affir- in, in confirming somebody's faith. We, we'll take your word for it. And we're not trying to be harsh. We're trying to be helpful. We want you to examine your own heart to, to make sure that you're not deceived, that you're truly regenerate. We want you to know that your faith is genuine. We want you to make it. We want you to find that rest in him. So there's a call for fear, if you will. You can have confidence, and you should, and boldness in Christ. But don't take it for granted. That's the point. Sin is, is deceitful. Tricker. It can trick you. You can think one thing and something else be true. You're not a really good evaluator of your own heart. And we, we didn't get to it. We'll pick it up next time, Lord willing. In, um, it, at the end here in verse 12 in chapter 4, it talks about what is a good discerner of the heart. It's God's word. And why must we objectively do that? Because we can be deceived. Because sin is deceitful. Do you remember in chapter 3 when he 
admonish the church. He's preaching to the church. In verse 12 of chapter 3, he says, take care of brothers. Brothers would be those that, that are in, in, have, have expressed faith. They, they've demonstrated. Be careful, brothers. Lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. That's the fear that he's talking about. Don't don't rest on your laurels. Examine your heart regularly. And, And again, this is not to put you in a state of panic. That's not the kind of fear he's talking about. It's it's a holy reverence for God. And recognizing he doesn't owe you anything. And it's only by his mercy. That, that he would allow you to even enter into his rest. And so examine your heart, confess your sin. That's what it's called for. And beyond that, as we emphasized whenever, uh, two weeks ago, I think, um, verse 13 of chapter 3, then to exhort one another. And this is part of why we gather together as the body of Christ, to be encouraging to one another. This is the accountability that we have for one another. It it, it isn't to single people out and and somehow make them, um, you know, ostracize them, pick on them, anything like that. It's to to make sure that they're coming with us. We, We want you all to make it. We don't want anybody to die in the wilderness. And you can be deceived. So examine your heart and, and encourage one another. Exhort one another. While it's called today, this is immediate. This is, this is right now. So that none of you would be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. It's a hardening thing. It, that is, it, you can have your conscience hardened against those things that would lead you away from the living God. Because we, we have come to share in Christ. And then he says, how, is, how, how will you know? How is that expressed? Well, we hold our original confidence firm to the end. You see that tension that is given there? But the result is we, we, we hold our faith in Christ to the end. Have a healthy fear that's called for. A sober mind that's not deceived. Because we have good news. And that's verse 2. Do you see that? Good news is mentioned here. It is indeed the concept of the gospel. It came to us like it came to them. Now, they didn't get the full uh, orb and aspect of the gospel as you know it. The Old Testament saints did not have a complete understanding of the elements of Jesus' life, which we get to read about in the Gospels. They, they, they weren't clear on all those aspects, even though it's in Scripture of his death, burial, and resurrection. But they had enough to know that they needed to find their refuge in God and God alone. And you will see that time and time and time again. And that, that refuge is a matter of faith, In chapter 11 in Hebrews, he's going to describe a lot of these Old Testament saints who were indeed regenerate and demonstrated that through their faith. The the, the problem here about this good news then and the good news now, it, it isn't really about the message, so to speak. 
It's about faith, the lack of it. Notice here in verse 2, it says, but the message they heard, looking back to them, whatever they heard, the content of it, it didn't really benefit them. So they had it, they heard it, and really in a unique way, looking at their circumstances, I mean, these are the ones that God sent Moses to and gave all the messages, gave all the miracles, had Aaron mediate on their behalf. But it really didn't help them. All that religiosity, all that went on, it really didn't help them because it was a lack of faith. That was their problem. They were not united by faith to those who did listen. Getting back again to those two groups of people, believers and unbelievers. It does you no good to, to hear and not heed, to not respond. You may know the truth. You may understand elements of it. You may have a really good idea of what all that's about. But that's good enough for demon faith. They know it's true. You read through these Gospels and hear what they say when they encounter Jesus Christ. You have more expressions of demon activity who are covert normally because they don't want to let themselves be known, but they know who Jesus Christ is. And they were worried, is this time? That's, that's, that's demon faith. They, they understand the truth of all of this. But faith, this uniting faith that unites you to Christ and to, by the way, one another within Christ, it's a true expression of belief brought about by the dynamic work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus will explain to Nicodemus, it's, it's like the wind. You don't know where it came from, you don't know where it's going, but you do see the effects of it, and there should be some effects. In this case, the effect mentioned here is listening. Listening is another way to describe obedience. It isn't obedience that's going to get your faith. Obedience is simply an expression of it. And faith is just going to come about by, by hearing these very words of Christ and the Holy Spirit working in the heart to change it to where you express it. And it's expressed not just in your lips, but in your life. And that's where the call again is don't be deceived. Listening means to respond in in, in obedience. Jesus would say in Luke 6, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I say? You call him sovereign master of everything, sovereign master of my entire life? And live a life of disobedience? That's a telltale sign of the heart. He would say in John chapter 14, You know, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. You'll obey. Obedience is an expression of our love for Christ. That love that has been granted to us. 
The good news here that's mentioned in verse 2, it is, the good news is that this opportunity, this window of opportunity, if you will, of eternal rest is still open. Reading these words today is an expression that this rest is available now. That, that's his point. So the charge is, be careful so you don't miss it. This is one event you don't want to miss. We prepare very hard to, when we travel these days, don't we? To get early <laughs> to the point of departure, particularly if it's an airplane. Have all of our things in order. That's the imagery given here. It's still open. There remains a rest. Don't miss it. Don't fail to enter in. It would be deadly. Verse 3 talks about this rest in a greater detail and how it's planned out. And, and again, it can be confusing to some degree, but let's just look at the scripture and see how it's presented. This rest that's called for, this rest that um, is mentioned has been planned from, notice, the foundation of the world. It kind of puts that as an aside here and, and just to remind us of that. We who have believed enter that rest. So, so by faith you go into that rest. <clears throat> by contrast, those who are, are unbelievers, he swears, that is, it, here's, a, here's a definitive statement, they're not going in. Remember, these are the two groups. And then he says, although, verse 3, his works were finished from the foundation of the world. That's an interesting phrase, isn't it? It points to that um, God knows what's going on all the time. Because he's prepared and he's planned and he has it work out. We're all worked out. From our perspective, the, the call is don't fail to enter. From God's position, he's saying you're not if you're in Christ. This is his, it, this refers to this finished, see, it's complete, this work, what? The rest, the rest for his people, it will happen, and it is finished from the foundation of the world. I know those are two thoughts that are hard to keep in our minds, but both are true. God's plan of salvation, if you will, <clears throat> is not just this window of opportunity, he has decreed this from the, the very beginning. His works are finished. The people that will enter into his rest are those that he has plucked out of the sea of humanity that he has chosen before him from the very beginning. Ephesians 1, verse 4. I'm going to have you turn to Acts if you like turning. I'm just going to read this one text because we've preached through Ephesians, but... Ephesians is very clear on this, Ephesians 1.4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy, excuse me, <coughs> that we should be holy and blameless.
before him in love. That's the state of those who are going to enter into his rest. They'll be holy because Christ is holy. Holy set apart. Blameless, no blame because Christ has borne the penalty. And they will be united with the beloved in love. No wonder they go into the rest. But this all occurs before the world even began. So here, God is praised then and glorified for his predetermined plan. And why I, uh, I mention it because that's what the text talks about, but just so that you understand that God works out everything in accordance with that, his ultimate plan. It can be very, it can be seen, even the difficulty that might be in your life, whatever else might be going on around you, and that can be clearly seen in relationship to Christ and the world and sending the Son. If you, if you want to see, you can look at a couple places in the preaching of Acts where it's explained one selection might be Acts 4.27. The person and the means by which this deliverance into the rest has been predetermined. In the preaching of Acts here in 427, for truly in this city were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand had predestined to take place. Did each one of these willingly do what was in their own heart? Was it an expression of their own evil heart? Absolutely. But none of this took God by surprise. It was his predetermined plan for them to act according to their evil of their own heart, but God would take their evil for the absolute greatest good. So, well, how does that work out? Well, he hasn't told us other than he's God. And that part, I'll have faith and believe that he is in control of everything. And in fact, I would say if he is in control of things right now, everything would just absolutely fall apart. So that's comforting and reassuring, even if it's difficult to comprehend what isn't difficult to comprehend is what the scripture actually says. It says that the rest was prepared for the before the foundation of the world. And here, the, the very means by which this would be accomplished in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is according to his plan. If you, if you want to see another a longer affirmation of that, find it in chapter 3 of the book of Acts. And Peter's talking, he says, I, in verse, 20, verse 17, I know you acted in ignorance, and so did your rulers, cause, but, God, what, but what God foretold by the mouth of the prophets, this is why the prophets could speak what would happen in the future, because God had predetermined it, all by the mouth of the prophets, that Christ would suffer. Thus he fulfilled. And so the call then is, repent therefore, turn back that your sins might be blotted out, that the times of refreshing might come in the presence of the Lord. 
and he may send Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. This, see how this imagery works in an explanation? It fits into this idea of rest, this idea of this restoring that has been promised long ago, and the, and the call then to, to come so that that refreshing, that's the, that's the terminology used here in verse 20, that refreshing would come for you in the presence of who? In Christ. Because Moses said, verse 22, The Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. You shall listen to him in in whatever he tells you. That is, you respond in faith. And it shall be that every soul who doesn't listen to that prophet will be destroyed from the people. Same idea, isn't it? The preacher of Hebrews as well. About these two groups. One group listens, and the other doesn't. If you listen, you will be in the presence of the Lord, if you will, in a rest or restoration, as it's mentioned here, the terminology. Otherwise, you will be destroyed. This is what God has done. God has established a rest for his people from the very beginning. Back to Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 4. And this part here can be a little confusing, I understand. Because why does he bring up this creation? Because this rest, this idea here, is from the very beginning, if you will. Verse 4 It talks about the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. This is pointing back to creation week. There were morning and evening. There were days. And each day, God created an element which we see here in the physical world. But on the seventh, there's no eighth. He's resting. There's a cessation of work, if you will. There's nothing else to be done. Creation itself is finished. It is in a state of good, if you'll read the text back in Genesis, not just good, but very good. It is in a state of absolute perfection. This is the the eternal rest. This is the paradise, if you will. And you know the rest of the story in chapter 3 in Genesis that mankind is cast out because of sin, which is an expression of their unbelief. Did God say, and God was doubted and disobeyed. So they're cast out. And that's why, beloved, you're never going to find this utopia, this perfection, this real rest, ultimate rest, on this side of the redemptive eternal state. It does remain. He did create it from the beginning. But God will destroy all of the works of the devil. He'll create, as I said, a new heaven and new earth where righteousness dwells. 
And at that point, yes, that will be in eternal rest. The good news, this creative work that is finished <laughs> doesn't need to be improved. It just needs to be entered in. And you'll enter it by faith. Do you hear what Christ is saying now? When he says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I wouldn't have told you that I go to prepare a place for you, but I go. If I go I, and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. That, that, that's pointing to this state of rest, eternal perfection in the very presence of Jesus Christ, and but, beloved, this is the message that all of us then should be encouraged to proclaim. It's the answer. The, the, you know, we, we want our politicians to suppress evil, our authorities to do the same thing. But we actually have the answer, if you're in Christ, to the rest that everyone wants. Not temporal but eternal, and it is in Christ. And that is his emphasis in back in chapter 4 and verse 6, this proclamation of this rest. Notice verse 6. Since, therefore, it remains for some to enter in. This is in the present tense, and he's going to emphasize this in this text a number of times. And, and you'll conclude here, in at least the section that I have, there remains, notice verse 9 again, there remains. So there remains to enter. L look through this text in verse 1, how this is emphasized. The, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest, and he used a different phraseology, but it still stands... It remains, it's open, available. For he who believed entered that rest, it's a present. Verse 6, since it remains, and then verse 9, as I mentioned, it remains as well. The, the author is quoting the psalmist, calling people to come and rest in God and find their refuge in him. He reminds them of of Joshua, notice verse 8. And he's preaching to the Hebrews who, they were, they were in their minds following Moses, and they all died in the wilderness. So then Joshua picks up where Moses left off, and Joshua leads them into the, the Canaan rest, right? So what's remaining? What's remaining is, a, is what all of this pictured and pointed to. The real rest in Christ. That's, that's his argument. <clears throat> Moses, as great as he was, couldn't lead the people into eternal rest. They died in the wilderness. Joshua, he comes to the forefront. He leads them into the land, yes, but did they stay? No, because of why? Unbelief. They're taken into captivity. 
The entire northern kingdom is completely wiped out because of their idolatry and unbelief in 722. They're gone. Jerusalem remains in Judea in 586. Similar. A remnant is remains because it is through that tribe that the, deli- the true deliverer will come. They were destroyed because of bondage and, un- and returned to bondage, if you will, because of their unbelief, even in the southern kingdom. This all pictures a someone else who will truly deliver fully and finally. It is Jesus Christ. Do you know him? Hear his words. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. That's where you're going to find rest. All of this other, as good as it might have been, it, 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 it all failed, didn't it? And everything else will fail. Christ will not. Look to him. Now, what do you do about this? You say, well, I understand that. And I'm trying to, to rest in Christ. I want to examine my heart to see if I'm truly resting in him because I don't want to miss it. I don't want to die in the wilderness. I want to enter in, and, and I see that promise is still available now. Back to our text, look, look at verse 10. It talks about the people who are actually going to enter in. And I said so by faith, but what does that look like? Verse 10, those who enter in then God's rest, they rest from their works, just like God did. You know why? It's finished. God rests and shows that from the beginning Because there's nothing more to be done. The second thing is this idea of striving in verse 11. It says then, strive to enter that rest so that you don't fall by the same sort of disobedience. Now that sort of seems paradoxical at first glance, doesn't it? Do these ideas conflict? It says to rest and then it says to strive. What's he getting at? The rest he's talking about is resting from your work, your religious ritual, your good deeds, your efforts toward uh, practical righteousness don't improve and don't uh, merit a rest before God. The rest that you're doing is, is you're not trying to earn favor before God because you're being a good boy or girl. The right standing before God is through Christ alone. He merits it. 
And beloved, there is no condemnation. There, there is no dying in the wilderness to those that are in Christ Jesus. Because there's nothing to be condemned. Because Christ is above condemnation. And he has granted it to those that are in union with him. We call this an alien righteousness, if you will. Imputed to our account. Merited. Favor. Christ's merit, not ours. And that creates a state of being. Which now I think I know how to answer an unbeliever who asked me once, what's the word? It intrigued me. He knew that I was a preacher and he wanted to hear some word, whatever that might be in his mind. It kind of startled my thoughts. But I think I found the word. It's throughout scripture. We read it today in the Psalms. And here's a quotation of it by Paul in Romans 4. Blessed. That's the word. Are you the blessed man against whom the Lord will not count his sin? That, that's our rest. It's a rest in... The fact that he will not count against us what we have done because they've been taken on by Christ and he atoned for everyone. And the righteousness that I need to stand before him is fulfilled by Christ. So we take on his yoke because his burden is light. It's easy because he's doing all the work. And we're just resting. We're resting in him. We're resting in his accomplishments. But beloved... Don't misunderstand and think then that it's sort of like studying by osmosis where you put the textbook under the pillow and lay down at night like my children used to do. I made that part up. Because the regenerate soul must also then rest in Christ but strive by the strength which Christ gives you. And that's his point here in verse 11. That, that, that you just, it, it, faith works. It, it has a reality to it. it it's demonstrated in, in your life. And, and you can't go on life and continue to engage in sin and not be convicted about it and not repent about it. That's, an, that's a demonstration that you've never known Christ. I'll read a selection from you from Romans 6. You could either turn or just listen. And, and here Paul talks to the church about the grace that we, we give. It's, it's super abounding. It's grace more than you know. There are waves of grace that continue to calm. And as you continually confess your sin, he'll continually forgive you which is really unbelievable. So you're in that state. You, you've been, you're resting in Christ. You're trusting in his accomplishment for righteousness, his payment for your sin. So, so what happens to that person who is in that state of being? 
Are they just then off the hook? He would say in Romans 6, 1, what do we say? Are, are we to continue in sin that grace may, may abound? Be, because where, where, where sin abounds, grace abounds even more, is his point? His response, his response is translated in my text, verse 2, by no means. The, the word really conveys the idea that's actually an impossibility. Okay? So, so if you think that way, oh, well, I've been forgiven by Christ, so therefore I can do whatever I want to do. Sorry, that's an impossibility. The fact that you might think that way demonstrates you've never known grace in the first place. And, and, he, and he gives the illustration. How could you, if, if, if you died to sin in Christ, then how can you live in it? We're, we're baptized, that is immersed, united to Christ in his death. And raised to walk in a newness of life. For we have been united with him in a death like his, and certainly we'll be united with him in a resurrection like his. There's an old self, he would go on to say, that is enslaved by sin. The new self has been freed, freed by Christ. To no longer live. It, it doesn't mean that you're still going to you're you're, you're going to be free from any uh, struggle. That's the idea of striving here in verse eleven. Both of these are true. Trust totally in Christ, who has accomplished this, who has finished this from the very foundation of the world, and then strive by the grace that he grants you to do so, so that you do not allow sin to reign in your mortal bodies, Romans 6, 6, 12, and you don't obey its passions. You don't present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but instead, on the opposite, present yourselves to God who has been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you're not under law, but under grace. Rest and strive. That's the call for the people of God. And in our hearts to remember there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Strive to enter in. Let us pray. Father, I pray that you'll give us clear understanding of your truth. May you knit our hearts to Christ. May we respond in great faith and faithfulness to the strength which you provide. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Beloved, take a moment now not to respond to me, but to Christ. If you have sinned to confess, confess it now. If you want to confess Jesus Christ as Lord, do so. If you need to talk to one of the elders afterwards. We're glad to do so. But take a moment, reflect, and respond privately where you're at. Take a moment now.
us to indeed to live by faith, to die by faith. Live in this land as strangers and exiles, so to speak. May we have a clear vision of an eternal rest and homeland in you. Desire a better country, a heavenly one, so that you will not be ashamed to be called our God because you have certainly prepared for us an eternal rest. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Jerry's going to come and lead us here with 637. We gather together and we'll play. Uh, we'll, um, you'll pray for a blessing on our meal. I hope you're able to gather together with us for our fellowship meal. We'll have it in the fellowship hall behind us. Uh, I've, I've cooked four turkey so we'll have plenty of that and there's tons of sides so if you didn't bring anything that's not the point we, we would like to share our uh, fellowship and abundance with you get a chance to talk with you uh, in this thanksgiving season and so uh, take this as my invitation to come and and join and fellowship with us uh, even for a few minutes uh, over here uh, next door in the fellowship hall and uh, I, I do want to mention as well if you don't already have the link, join us at 7 on Wednesday for a, a, a blessing uh, for Thanksgiving. Uh, I'm going to do a special blessing for that, scripture reading and a devotional and encouragement as we enter this season. And really one of my favorite holidays, and I hope it's yours as well, because it reminds me about Christ and, uh, and great thankfulness uh, to him for all that he has done. Let's stand to sing together this hymn. Gracious Father, we're indeed thankful for this opportunity we're about to partake of now to gather together, Lord, to fellowship around the table, and to break bread with one another. <clears throat> we give you thanks and praise for all those who've made the effort to prepare food. We give you uh, praise for providing it for us, and we ask that you would bless it to our bodies. And Father, we just pray now that that the Lord would strengthen each and every one of us with all power according to his glorious might and all uh, endurance and patience with joy and that you may give thanks to the Father who qualifies us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light forever and ever. Amen. You're dismissed. <laughs>